Lots of people are worried about the effects of artificial intelligence. Misused, it can cause harm. But my next guest says federal contracts can provide a line of defense against improper use of AI. Just before release of the White House's guidance on AI, I spoke with University of Pennsylvania law professor and federal regulation expert, Kerry Connolisi. Contracts can include provisions to uh, address transparency problems, which is a big, big concern about the use of AI, requiring contractors to disclose information about how these tools are designed and structured. Contracts can also address other kinds of substantive concerns about AI in terms of bias, for example, and safety. And they can also impose requirements for procedures for auditing and validation. So we often are thinking in Washington these days about the need for legislation on AI and regulation on AI. And that may be needed, but it's going to be some time coming. Contracts can be and are being written every day, and they can be written in a way to require that contractors uh, use AI tools in a responsible manner. And as you point out, there is no law or much regulation, but there is some case history, not at the federal level. You cite a case that happened in Houston with public school teachers who found that an algorithm amounted to a black box and a judge agreed with them. Tell us about that case and what it says about the use of AI. Yeah, it was relatively unsophisticated algorithm by the standards of what we have today. But back several years ago, the school teachers in the city of Houston uh, took the school district to court because the school district had been applying a performance algorithm that was being used to evaluate teachers for pay and continued employment. The algorithm had been developed and was run by a private contractor who claimed trade secret protection over the algorithm, and the teachers said, wait a minute, we're public employees, school district, you're a public entity, we have constitutional due process rights to some degree of transparency and fairness in how we are being evaluated, and we can't even know what that is, and the court agreed with them. And it seemed to me, uh, in retrospect, an obvious fix for that would have been to have the school district, during the contracting process, require the vendor to provide adequate information. And this doesn't mean turning over everything, but due process considerations would require a minimal amount of information about how the algorithm was structured, what it was designed to optimize for, what were the sources of data, how is it tested, validated. In fact, a lot of private companies right now are on their own disclosing that kind of information in what are called model cards or system cards. And that suggests that you can actually expect companies to release adequate information about how their algorithms are working without running afoul of legitimate concerns about confidential business information. Well, right. And even in the intellectual property space, which is not our topic today, you have to tell something about what it is before you can get a patent on something. So even revealing those trade secrets doesn't give anyone the right to copy them. It just means that you're transparent about it. Fair to say? That's right. This is 
an avoidable nested opacity problem, as I call it. Uh, we're concerned legitimately about the opacity of AI tools. Can we really understand why they're generating the results that they are generating? But then there's this second layer of opacity that can be created when private vendors are developing these tools if they won't share information about them. There is information that can be disclosed and should be disclosed, and it's a no-brainer that today, as uh, government entities are contracting for digital services and AI tools, that they are careful about ensuring that the contractual language will provide a basis for the government entity to demand and, and expect the disclosure of some basic information that the public deserves to know about how these tools are being designed and used. We are speaking with Kerry Connellisi. He's a law professor and director of the Penn Program on Regulation, all this at the University of Pennsylvania. And I found it interesting you call procurement and AI a two-way relationship because not only can contracts ensure that this visibility and transparency is available to the contracting entity, but there are ways that AI can transparently help the procurement process itself. Tell us more about that. That's right. There's an emerging area of procure tech, and tools are being developed that use AI-based algorithms to parse contract proposals and flag issues maybe where the proposals are deficient. Government agencies are experimenting with chatbots that can provide questions and answer services for understanding regulatory requirements for procurement. Tools can be developed using AI to help government agencies assess proposals for various risks or possible delays and how those proposals are evaluated. Accepted contracts, uh, AI tools can be used in that context for auditing, contractual performance, managing supply chains. So there's a lot of potential for using AI within the procurement process at the same time that the procurement process itself can be used as a means for governing governmental use of AI. So in the first situation, it would be incumbent upon the contractor to provide this window into how its algorithm works. But in the second case, it's the government that would have to provide the transparency. Otherwise, every time they use the algorithm, there'd be a protest from everyone who didn't get the contract. That's right. And it may be sort of a complex loop here because the government may be using a private contractor to design and develop a procure tech tool that it's used to assess procurement bids and would need to make sure that it has adequate information, you know, and access to that information to uh, withstand those contests to uh, denial of awards that would certainly be expected. But there's nothing, I think, inherent in the use of AI tools that should keep government agencies from going forward and using them in the procurement context or in many other contexts, as long as 
they're careful to ensure that there will be adequate information about how these tools are designed, what they're aiming for, what data they're relying upon and been trained on, and how they have been validated and shown to work. I like to say that in some ways, these tools can be analogized to the use of a thermometer or any other kind of machine or mechanical instrument. Government agencies are not precluded from relying upon those tools to uh, make determinations that affect private interests, whether it's in the procurement context or, or any other context. You just have to make sure that those tools are validated ones and they're working properly. They've been designed for the proper purpose. And uh, if we think about AI in those terms and ensure that there's adequate disclosure about the responsible assurance that these machines, if you will, have been uh, well validated. Uh, government entities, I think, can safely rely upon them, but you know they have to make sure they can disclose the information to demonstrate that. And what form does that disclosure take? As a final question, a lot of agencies are pursuing software bills of material for cybersecurity and supply chain purposes and I'm making an analogy here, a uh, software bill of materials can be an incomprehensibly long digital document, and so you get it, great, what do I do with it now? What are some of the elements that might be on these model cards or system cards such that people could decipher what it is that the vendor is showing about their own algorithm? Well, I think definitely we would want to see what the mathematical objective is that the algorithm has been designed to optimize for. That's critical. And that's going to be human determined. What is it supposed to be doing? (laughs) And then where is it getting its data that's training the algorithm? That's important. And what measures are the contractors for the agencies using to audit and ensure the accuracy, first and foremost, that these data and the model design is actually achieving its objective. And then I think there's a range of reasonable side effects that would be worth disclosing as well. Has it been audited for bias, uh, for example, uh, would be among those. And that's standard in what seems to be an emerging practice among the mainly big tech firms in their model and system cards. And I think, you know, over time, we're going to develop, I think, a more systematic understanding of what proper disclosure entails. And it's also going to be something that may well vary from use case to use case. But I think, roughly speaking, objectives, data, validation, auditing. And do I detect a preference for a market-driven approach rather than a regulatory or legal approach to keeping AI in its swim lane? Well, I think in many respects, this is kind of an all-hands-on-deck governance approach that we're going to need. I don't think that one can say across the board there should be a preference for one set of tools or another. I think there are aspects of AI and uses of AI that will demand legislative and, and regulatory responses. But even those regulatory responses will probably need to be fairly flexible and adaptable because AI, we might talk about it as a singular technology, but it's actually many, many different technologies. And once you recognize that, that's also an advantage of thinking about procurement as a governance tool. 
procurement, as I've said, could be something that's used today. We don't have to wait for legislative or regulatory action. It's also something that can be customized to the specific use case at issue. And that's going to be, I think, very important to any kind of governance approach uh, to uh, AI. So you can call that market-driven. I might call it sort of customization or a holistic approach to AI. I also think, by the way, that there's absolutely a need for government vigilance So even in the procurement contracting context, no government agency should be lulled into thinking that we've put these terms in the contract and we've done all that we need to do now to govern the use of AI under this contract. AI is a dynamic technology as data upon which it's trained vary, its results may vary, the models may need to be updated over time. And as a result, any contracts for AI themselves may need to be updated or at least have provisions that allow for an ongoing flow of information about how they're being used. So ongoing vigilance is really, really important in AI governance today. Terry Connellisi is a law professor and director of the Penn Program on Regulation at the University of Pennsylvania. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his paper at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the the behaviors that we allow and we uh, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to 
enable our mission. Excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I 
presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency. So we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is 
having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins, who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.